Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. Jessica here. A note before we get started, today's interview will contain descriptions of and discussion of sexual assault and rape. So if you're not up for this right now, you might want to skip this interview. Today, I'm joined by two award-winning journalists, Paula Levine and Tom Janot. Last week, they published a long investigative piece for ESPN titled simply Untold. It's about a Penn State football player, Todd Hodney, from the late 1970s, who raped multiple women in Happy Valley before being convicted for one of those crimes. But a judge, Richard Sharp, let him go post-conviction, pre-sentencing, and Hodney returned home to Long Island where he committed another slew of horrible, violent rapes. He served prison time, got out, and harmed again, eventually spending the rest of his life behind bars. This piece is harrowing, a warning for all who will read it after hearing this. But it's brilliant both the reporting and the writing. It's about football. It's about Penn State. It's about Joe Paterno. But it's also about memory, about who and what are forgotten and why, and about what it means to tell a story decades later. Even though the subject matter is rough, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to Paula and Tom today about this important work. Thank you both for coming. Paula, it's pretty wild that this is your first time on the show. (laughs) I'm so excited. I've been waiting for this opportunity for the longest time. So this is uh, this is an honor. Thank you, Jessica. So I'd like to start at the beginning. How did you all come to this story? How did you decide to work on it together? And what did that partnership look like? So I grew up in uh, Wontaw, Long Island. And so did Todd Hodney. Right. I went to uh, Catholic high school on Long Island. And so did Todd Hodney. In fact, um, I played against him when I was well, saying a little bit much that I played against him since I was mostly a bench warmer and he was a, you know, a superstar um, linebacker. But um, I definitely um, knew of him and I knew a lot of people who knew him. And if you grew up, um, you know, as a Catholic high school football player in Long Island, you knew who he was. He was a, a star and dominant player. And then he went off to um, play football for Joe Paterno at Penn State. And in the spring of 79, um, you know, I opened up Newsday and which is, you know, the local newspaper. And there was a a big picture of Todd Hodney in a polo shirt with his hands stuffed behind his back. And he had come back from Penn State and had raped um, and and sexually assaulted a series of women, a string of women all over Long Island. And, but that's, I mean, so I was fascinated um, with that story forever. Um, And I think it was the aspect that this guy had had everything or seemed to have everything and, and fell from grace in the most, you know, violent and horrific way. I mean, it had, it so fascinated me and so caught my imagination that I was thinking of writing about it long before I was a writer. Hmm. When I got out of college, I was a salesman. I was a handbag salesman in Dallas, Texas. Oh. <laughs> but I kept, a, I kept a journal. I kept a notebook. And a couple of years ago, I took a look at that journal and saw this note from February 1981, you know, one day right about Todd Hodney. Wow. Yeah. And so when, when I had heard from my friend in May of 2020 that Todd had died in prison, it just was um, an immediate sort of now or never moment. Like, you know, wow, you've been, you've been wanting to write about this for a long time. Why don't you look into it? But then at the time, I only knew about the Long Island assaults. 
And my first phone call was to um, Hodney's teammate at St. Dom's, which is the high school he went to, and um, and also at Penn State. And I said, you know, can you tell me something um, about Todd? What Todd was like before the crimes? And he was like, which crimes? Oh wow! <laughs> and just saying that right now, I just got chills because that was the moment. Uh, I was like, what do you mean, which crimes? And he was like, well, he. You know, there's the ones on Long Island. He goes, but then he committed a whole bunch of them at Penn State, which I knew nothing about, zero. And that's when Paul came. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I remember I was on a run and uh, I was on the phone with Tom and he was telling me about this and the whole story about the journal and about, you know, what had transpired with these conversations. And I just thought, this is amazing. And the second thing I thought was, how on earth has this not been out? Yeah. I mean, I knew all about Sandusky and about everything that had happened, you know, with the investigation and just how how deep into the institution every you know the the all of the reporting that happened around that time and I kept thinking how does this not come up in any of that? I mean, if you're doing a retrospective on you know, sexual abuse and behavior at Penn State, how do you not find this? You know, that that became a huge cornerstone of the reporting that, you know, that that we would do and, and the narrative that would eventually come out of the story. Hmm. Yeah. And that was the thing. You know, of course, we did an Internet search right away. There was one line on the Internet about Todd Hodney, and that was from a Sports Illustrated article from 1980 in which Sports Illustrated was asking uh, Penn State, you know, questions about like sort of the the uncharacteristic off the field peccadilloes of its players. And there's a line in there. It said it, it began with um, Todd Hodney who, you know, raped a series of women on Long Island. It, did, it didn't even go that far. It was like a clause and a half. Huh. And that was it. And, and that was the thing. I mean, it had, it had gone away that story, especially the Penn state attacks. Hmm. I'd like to hear a little bit. This is kind of a, Selfish question on my part, but I'd like to hear about the nuts and bolts of the reporting. This comes up in the piece, but like how many people you talked to, how you found them. I know, Paula, you're a document hound, like what documents you were looking at. And I would like to hear sort of the biggest obstacle um, that you faced in, in reporting on this story. The biggest obstacle was time. Time. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, I yeah. mean, so many of the records had been destroyed. I'm, I mean, these rapes happened before anyone thought to keep rape kits for DNA testing. Um, and so, so much of the stuff just didn't exist and it varies state by state. Like some States yeah. they held on to the records. I mean, this became an issue with the prison and the parole records and, hmm. you know, in some States they held on to them and in other States they had already destroyed them. And then the releasability of them in both cases varied. Right. And yeah. and we had um, in Pennsylvania, which I don't think has very good laws when it comes to this, uh, we really battled with the Center County District Attorney's Office there to release what few documents it had. And it was one of those situations where, like, they had some discretion to give us stuff, but they weren't legally obligated to. And we were only able to get some of the police reports with the help of the survivors because you know they had they had more standing than we did and i remember 
being in the lobby of the Center County District Attorney's Office with Betsy Saylor, who was one of the survivors, and, and Karen sitting in there calling the records custodian who was gone, who was not present, apparently, and listening to Betsy on the phone, like pleading with them for her records. And I, it just broke my heart because I'm like, this woman has suffered so much. And Betsy's an amazing, I mean, you can tell from the story, she's an amazing woman. And here she is on the phone, you know, 40 some years later, almost begging them to, to give them her police report. I'm like, this is like, I just, it was, I don't know. I mean. Why didn't they? Just like a policy or they just. Yeah. I think that also they, they're so used to this idea of, okay, that, you know, they're, they owe you the records by some kind of law, but all these laws also provide for a certain amount of discretion and discretion just means no. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you're right. You know, it's really yeah. it's really true. They just they yeah. just decide not to because they can. Right. Even when the law was on their side, like one of the victims from Long Island, she was deceased and her daughter, uh, she's in the story, Kathleen Perkle, was going back and forth with Nassau County to get her records. And the law is entirely on her side in this case. Like there wasn't it was like they they had to provide it to her. She had to get proof of being next of kin, of being the executor of her mother's estate. She did everything. She filled everything in. Mm. And they responded to her and they said, we don't have anything for you. And I, I knew that they were wrong because I had already been in touch with them. And they sent me a denial letter listing all the things that I couldn't have. And I oh sent that gosh. to her and I said, they're lying to you because they have all of these things and you're entitled to them. And only until we connected all these dots and that and then she sent when she made it clear to them that I had been in touch with her. Only then did she get the records of her mother and grandmother's sexual assault and, and assault. And I'm thinking this woman should not have to go through this. And and after that, I mean, it was still it took forever. The the person she dealt with wasn't very responsive. It it's just so disturbing how hard it is to get this information. And again, in a couple of these cases, we would not have received any of it had we not had the the help of the survivors. And Tom can talk about how we actually came across the best information, the most comprehensive documents from Pennsylvania actually came from a prosecutor's office in New York. Yeah, in Suffolk, in mm. Suffolk County. Um, mm. The other obstacle was, and it's also related to Paula's answer from before, it's related to time. It was people either forgetting or just you know, saying, well, this happened 43 years ago. Why do you want to talk about it? You know, especially the players and especially the coaches, the coaches. I mean, I was I was shocked at how many coaches had no idea who coached him, had no idea who Todd Hodney was. I mean, you would think that they would know the guy who, you know, went home because he had this rape conviction and then went on to, you know, rape and sexually assault a bunch of women, a string of women in Long Island. But they didn't or said that they didn't. And um, a lot of football players completely minimized either his contribution to the team or the amount of time that they spent with them. I mean, nobody was Todd Hodney's friend for a long time, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but he had plenty of friends. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you have a quote in the piece. I have it here. It's Dave Baker, an assistant 
sports information director at Penn State in 1978, who's still at the school as an associate athletic director today. And he said, quote, I never met him, and I don't remember if he ever played a game for Penn State. It was a long time ago. He got in trouble, and he was no longer on the team. And I was like, huh, I don't remember if he ever played a game for Penn State. was fascinating to me because this was a huge line in the Sam Ukawachu case at Baylor. Like, he never played for the team. We don't have to care about him. Uh, And then I kept reading, and he had played an entire season. Yeah, he he had a successful freshman year. So, and... I mean, the memory thing is really fascinating to me. Uh, When Dan Solomon and I were working on our longer piece about Baylor that came out at Deadspin, we looked into a rape case when Bryles was a high school football coach. Um, And man, memory was so interesting. Like none of the men on the school board at the time remembered anything about it. I called the woman on the school board at the time and boy, did she remember (laughs) talking about that. So before we get into like, the narrative writing of this. Can we go back and just tell the listeners a little bit about the actual timeline of events of of Hodney and like how this played out? Yeah. So on September 13th, Todd Hodney uh, raped Betsy Saylor. And it was, you know, in her apartment. She lived off campus in State College. Betsy believes that he stayed there onwards of two hours. And it was about what another another month later, they connected fingerprints. You know, connected from the scene fingerprints that Betsy was, you know, sharp enough and present of mind enough to know. I mean, she was listening to Hodney while he was going through rummaging through the apartment, knowing what he touched and remembering what he touched, so she could find those fingerprints and report them. Anyway, they were finally connected to Hodney through this. Well, number one, they had the, his fingerprints because he did the burglary at the record store in the summer. And then um, this other thing happened, which was kind of almost like a fluke in this story. And that's where uh, Paul is going to take over. So without having a name, the fingerprints didn't do much for the police. They needed a name. And Susan, one of the victims, um, after her assault, she kept getting these harassing phone calls. And Susan's dad at the time happened to be kind of higher up at the phone company and he was able to have the calls traced. And sure enough, they went back to Hodney's dorm room in Hamilton Hall. 279 Hamilton Hall. And that's how the police Uh ended up actually having a name to trace back to the fingerprints. And at that moment when, when talking to the prosecutor about that and why that mattered, that was one of many moments where it reminded me we're talking about the 1970s and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and it's hard to look at these sort of crime uh, scenarios in the mindset of that time period because you're looking at it in the mindset of 2022, what you expect police to be able to do. And I was like, oh, yeah, right. Of course, they, they had fingerprints, but that didn't get them anywhere. They couldn't just enter them into a database. There's no database. There's no computer. <laughs> so, yeah, that part with her and that phone call was so crucial to ever being able to catch him. And who did the police call first when they, when they made the fingerprint match? Joe Paterno. Yeah. And so Joe was, was part of this investigative process for, from that moment until the trial. Uh, the trial mm. was began on March 1st of 1979. And during spring break. During spring break. So there's no, cover, mm. there's no coverage whatsoever. Mm. 
That's interesting. And on March 3rd, uh, Todd Hodney is convicted of um, breaking and entering, rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. All of these are felony ones. And he, you know, he's unanimous verdict of the jury. And then Judge Richard Sharp allows him, he's on $25,000 bond. Judge Sharp announces that he's not going to revoke his bond and that Hodney is free to go until sentencing. So it is interesting. Like I wrote a note as I was reading when you got to the part where you introduce Karen more extensively. She was raped by Hodney. And the section here, over the time you're talking to her, she's remembering more and more. You actually use the word awakening in the piece to talk about what that experience was like. So I'm just, what are you all thinking about memory and storytelling at this point? Um, Like, how do you know what to trust, what you can use? Like, how does that work in journalism in particular, where we have fact checking and lawyers and all this other kind of part of the process? Yeah, it, it, it's always interesting how people remember something, especially when it is tied to a trauma, right? Um, so when I cold called Betsy Saylor and completely out of the blue and she picks up the phone and I you know, establish that she is who I think she is, she starts talking about her assault and what happened. And as she's telling me this story, it is as if she is reading it from her 1978 court testimony that you know Tom and I had looked at previously, all the way down to talking about that she remembered that she had Clinique makeup, because Clinique was new at the time, hmm. and all of these details. And I am just floored at how this has just stayed with her and so ever present. And yet she's so stable and in control of it and she owns it. Right. And with Karen, I think it is very present with her as well. I think with her, she has struggled because she was one of those who who were forgotten and that has always weighed on her. And I think that, she spent so much time listening to people tell her to move on and to forget about it. And I think to, to a certain degree, a lot of that for her had been repressed. And, and when I was probably the first person in decades to ask her about this. And as she is going through these conversations and, you know, there's a lot, I mean, there are a lot of phone calls back and forth, there are emails back and forth. And every time she remembers a little bit more, you know, she would send something out of the blue saying she remembered a car or she remembered something that the police asked of her. And, and same thing with, with some of the other women. Um, Some of them, I just had a couple conversations with and they, all of it was out there at the same time. Others, similar sort of thing. Like they would say, oh, by the way, you know, after we talked, I was thinking about this and I remembered X, Y, and Z. And as to your question about, well, how do you prove that? Uh, As much as we could with documents, like with Betsy, obviously we had the court testimony and, and it's also why in the story we made a point of whenever any of the other women were mentioned document wise, uh, especially the women from state college, whose own reports were had been destroyed 
if they were referenced in Betsy's report, if there was a, a friend or roommate who we could get some sort of corroboration from, you know, anything that they could provide to us. You know, um, one of the women talked about an interaction she had with a, a bowling coach and the coach didn't remember her, but I actually had her request her transcript. And by God, she had bowling. She showed, sent me the copy of the transcript. She had it that semester. I was like, okay. So as uh, you're right, it's, it's incredibly tough because it, you know, memory is, is a very, um, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. It taught me a lesson about suppression. Um, because I, I think that the rule in this story was the people who either suppressed it, mostly the players and the coaches, or who had it suppressed, people like Karen, had m- more trouble remembering it, you know, 40 some odd years later than people like Betsy, who, you know, as, as Paul just said, owned it, who went to court and, you know, won a case against this person. And, and I think that that was, that was definitely something to learn because I think that was pretty consistent. As, as Paul said, I mean, until we got Betsy's police files, there was no way to find out anything about the other women who were um, sexually assaulted in Penn State other than Betsy Saylor. There was just, we had nothing. Um, the, first, the first inkling that we had that there were others came when Paul made a, a document request at Center County and we got the uh, transcripts for the, um, Betsy's preliminary hearing and some aspects of that case, including also the, also the case in which Hodney was uh, arrested and convicted of burglarizing the record store. You know, he wound up getting suspended for that. But there came this one piece of paper with all, you know, with the, with the transcript from the preliminary hearing that said, and it was the only piece of, a, of any police report that came in in that bunch of files. And it said, you know, the detective, Dwayne Musser, went to 279 Hamilton Hall to speak to um, Hodney's roommate, Redacted, to ask the Redacted roommate about Petsy Saylor plus four other women and then four other occasions. And that's, that's the thing that set us on the search, because before that, we had no real clue that there were other women other than rumors from football players. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about with memory is the fact that you're telling the story post-Sandusky, and that there's a certain way that people think about Joe Paw and think about Penn State and their relationship um, through that case. And I'm wondering, like, how you accounted for that filter, like... Even people like involved in the story, they come to this with a, they already have an understanding of Joe Pa, or they already have an institutional understanding of Penn State. Is it possible to separate those things out as people are remembering things that happened previous to that? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I'm wondering if there's even a way to separate that out, or if you just take that for granted that that might be influencing how they're understanding what had happened before. I don't know if this answers your question question exactly but one when you say that it reminds me of when I went down the road of looking at other rapes in state college around that time and ended up talking to several women who were activists on campus or worked for the rape crisis center or were part of the women's program like just that sort of movement and talking to them about you know what the culture was then 
and and you know i'm i'm sure it wasn't unique to state college in the 70s but their sort of battle for any type of recognition or support i mean the stigmas then were just so much worse than they are now but then hearing them talk about their reaction when the sandusky news came out and how they weren't surprised huh. They didn't take all the Sandusky news as a revelation because they were saying this, this attitude. I mean, Jessica, you know how people do not like to think about things being, you know, cause and effect. And yeah. the bad apple phrase is a, is a one that lots of universities like to use. The isolated incident. Yes, the isolated incident. Right, right. The, the anomaly. The anomaly. Yeah. But it's but it isn't because what right. they're saying and what is the God honest truth is that how the university and the community just it handled or did not handle or wanted to ignore what was happening with Todd Hodney set up a system. It set up a status quo. It set up a this is how we deal with or don't deal with or deflect or whatever when issues like this come about. And when all of the stuff, as you move forward and the stuff happens with Sandusky, that's even though we're talking about a different type of abuse and, and different victims, that whole system born from these other events is still filtering through. The same leaders are there with the same attitudes and the same belief systems. And it's no wonder that things end up in, in a similar pattern of not everybody doing the right thing. People could be doing more and they, you know, all of that. And that's what these women were saying was that when this stuff came out about Sandusky, they said the script was written for this 20 years earlier. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys about is like writing this story and you've written it for a sports outlet for ESPN. Um, but it it is interesting in that, like, I would say the main institutional villain probably in the story is Judge Richard Sharp. Like his decision to let Hodney go home post-conviction, pre-sentencing is just like... Like, I can feel my blood pumping just even, like, say, saying this to you because it's just so shocking. Uh, 
And yet this isn't a story about, you know, the criminal justice system or something like that, right? Like this is framed the first, the lead is, the lead and the kicker are both brilliant. Um, and they're Penn State stories and they're about Joe Pa and Sandusky. Uh, and I'm just wondering, like, why this is a sports story? I mean, I look at this as a, not as a sports story, but as a sexual violence story. But it, it's a sexual violence story that couldn't be anything but a sports story. This, this pretty much had to happen in the sports world. Um, you know, it's one of those stories where like the punctuation is applied by the various protagonists. I mean, Todd Hodney's the first known sexual assault of the Happy Valley series occurred on the day that he was suspended. If you want to underscore the, 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 the sports connection, it's, you know, it's right there. Yeah. For, for all the ties, because it was a, a football player, all of that, but it's also worth pointing out that one of Hodney's defense attorneys uh, is a former Penn State player. Mm-hmm. And he's he's the guy that we all know that's that still exists in every college town in America. I'm going to say all these beats are so similar. Like, you know how it is, Paula, when you start one of these cases, like you ask about the lawyers. Do they have a connection to the school? Because that's such a normal thing even now. Yeah. He's the guy that you call to get out of trouble yeah, and yeah. Um, helping some guys negotiate pro contracts. So he was working in that capacity, too. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's ever present. And he still had gym privileges. He could still work out with the team. Wow. Yeah. I also don't think that you can understand Joe Paterno without it. Um, I think the fact that there's I mean, his his career is, you know, has always been defined as this this rise, you know, and sudden, almost, you know, inexplicable fall. And I think that, I mean, that's been the narrative since, you know, his statue came down. Um, and I think that this completely rewrites that. Um, the fact that there was uh, a prelude to that, the fact that under his oversight, there were two really dangerous serial sexual predators. I mean, I guess he's unlucky. <laughs> Um, or is it something about the, you know, the culture that, that he created, you know, facilitated this because I, I mean, we sort of pitch the, the story as, um, you know, before Sandusky was Todd Hodney, but really you can just look at it as after Todd Hodney came Sandusky. And because, I mean, you, you would think that he would have learned something during the Todd Hodney thing. You know, I mean, it was a disaster and you would think that he would he would learn something from it, but he either didn't learn anything or he learned the wrong things. Yeah. Sorry to go back to it, but it just reminds me so much of that of Bryles and that story. And when he was a high school coach and that was why we pursued it, it was so hard. Uh, But we're like, we've got to get this. This has to exist somewhere just to say, like, by the time he's making choices at Baylor, he had already made choices. Like, it wasn't as if this was brand new for him in that moment. Like, this was something he had already had to make a choice about at another point. Uh, I mean, I totally get that. But one of the things that really stuck with me was it was a, um, a parole board hearing. And he's talking about how football was always such a part of him. And and there's this sort of running theme through through much of what he says about how when he 
lost football because he was suspended from the team because of that burglary. He wasn't entirely gone because, you know, Paterno made it clear if he, you know, kept his nose clean, he didn't have a chance to come back. But because he lost that opportunity, like that was so hard for him to deal with. And that football was, was part of his identity. And, and even the, you know, and, and everything that we tie in with the aggression and the, you know, sense of, of entitlement, all of that. I mean, I don't think you can separate this and his actions from his identity as a football player. Yeah. He says, you know, football was everything, my self-worth, it was who I was. It was also where I expressed what you might deem negative emotions. You know, he goes on, I never dealt with anything in my life and I stored it up and turned it into anger on the football field and, you know, goes into, you know, sort of how that just becomes part of him. Yeah. I found the parole hearing. So it was 2019, a year before he died. I just like, I was reading it and I almost didn't know what to make of it because we know he's a liar. Uh, that's well established. You guys use that word a lot in the piece, actually. And I was like, man, like someone like me who studies this, this is what I would expect. Like, this is what I want them to say almost, uh, like to explain this connection. So I was like, is he saying this because he thinks that's what he's supposed to say in order to make sense of this? This is 2019. This is what, four years post Baylor, Paula, both of our books exist in the world. Our conversation around college football and sexual assault is like on a, it's the most robust maybe it's ever been. I mean, I guess we'll just never know like whether or not he believed this or if he was like parroting what he thought the parole board would want to hear. Uh, yeah. It's a really good question because I mean, there is, there is a canned aspect to some of that, some of that testimony, especially when he's talking about like, his sexual fantasies and trying to distinguish what kind of fantasies he was having versus, I mean, he had clearly gone through a lot of required therapy um, to even get before the, get before the parole board. And he's speaking that, but I always thought that when he's talking about football, it's the least canned of what he had to say. Like when he's talking about, you know, the rapes and him being a control rapist and stuff. Right. I mean, it sounds very, very institutional. Right. But when he's talking about football, it does not. And that's that that was always of interest to me. Hmm. But yeah, it's like it's the way he even talks about like when I got to Penn State, that's when I learned that, you know, women are sexual objects. This is part of being a player, having access. I was like, dude, like I wrote that in my book. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. So do I I was like is he yeah. just proving my point or is he just Parody. saying yeah. my book? Like, I, I was like, I feel so, I was so interested in that little piece. That is a really good observation because it, as you read through the parole hearing testimony over the you know decades, like his, his responses change. And then this, this type of language, you know, becomes more a part of his argument. And And the question is, is that really because of, therapy and him getting in touch with his inner demons or is it because Did you see Paula Levine on ESPN <laughs> outside the lines? Did he read yeah. Jessica's book and be like, ah, this is what I need to argue. This is people will feel for me now because this is out there. And of course, with someone like this, you can't know because this was part of like his entire deal. It's just saying whatever at whatever right. moment. Right. Um, I know you guys have been asked this before, but I can't not ask you, why was it important to tell a story that's now four decades old? I mean, I think that there's a, a bunch of different things for, because um, I, was, I, was, I was asked that, you know, when I was 
doing my calls, you know, and I would call, especially, you know, calling football players. They were like, why are you writing about this now? Why, why would it, why would anyone write about Todd Hodney in, you know, 2020, 2021? I mean, it was just, it would, you know, I think it seemed to them like sort of ridiculous. Um, I mean, there were, there were definitely the closer you got and the better people knew Todd, you would get people who actually talked about being shaken up. I mean, I talked, I talked to this one guy, uh, Frank Burkowski, who was a basketball player who hung around with Todd. And he was just like, he goes, I've never been able to really look at any of my friends the same way. He goes, I just never know. You, you can never know what people are, are capable of. Um, you know, so in the beginning, I was, you know, kind of conscious of that. I was kind of self-conscious about like, why, why are we doing that story? Why are we doing this? And then Paul talked to Betsy. And that all went away. Uh, I knew I knew exactly why we were doing it. Yeah, for the, I mean, two ways to answer that. One, the most obvious for me is is for the women. I mean, they have waited decades to be able yeah. to tell their truth and to get their story out there. And you know, a couple of them didn't want to talk, but but most of them did. And I guess of all the comments we received from the women afterward, um, the one that just brought me to tears was uh, Kathleen Perkle, whose mother was raped by Hodney and she passed away a number of years ago. And I asked Kathleen, I said, you know, what, what do you think your mother would, would think of this? And she's like, oh my gosh, she's dancing in heaven right now. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. And I, I just, I even say that it just makes me want to cry. I just, I was so touched by it. And she, I mean, hearing from Kathleen and, and Betsy and, and some of the other women about what this meant for them. And, you know, I don't think it, I think it's hard. It's really hard. And I think it, it forces some tough discussions and, and emotions that they haven't dealt with for a long time. But I, I know that it means a great deal and it means a great deal to a lot of other women out there who, you know, reached out afterwards. And, and I think the other thing that I think is important about telling the story this many years later is to show people, especially people who dismiss these type of things to show them how long this trauma lasts and Betsy Saylor is in her 60s. Her, her mom, Ann Saylor, is in her 80s. And I remember calling uh, Ann Saylor, and she was talking about the day that Betsy called her to tell her that she had been raped. And the emotion in Ann's voice, I mean, she can't even get through that story without starting to choke up. I, I am going to invoke another Baylor comparison. Um it immediately took me back to interviewing Candace Hernandez. Uh, it was Jasmine Hernandez's uh-huh, mom. Sure. Jasmine Hernandez being, you know, Tevin Elliott's uh, victims from, from Baylor and telling me like the exact same story. And when she, when I was talking to Candace, it, you know, Jasmine's assault had happened just a few years earlier. It was like, just, it, you know, it was very fresh for them. Ann Saylor and Betsy Saylor could have been talking about something that happened last year with the level of emotion in their voice and the fact that you could tell that it still was something that pierced their hearts. It, I just thought was so important to tell because people need to know that this, this does not go away. I mean, this has been a part of them and this memory is, is ever present for them and, you know, I, I, for people to think, oh, you'll get over it or, you know, you'll move on. 
no, I mean, that's not, it, it will always be a part. And for them, it, it always has been. I thought that was a really beautiful part of the piece towards the end where you guys talk about that aspect of like, it makes you who you are, but also don't want it to define you. All that sort of things that we hear from victims and survivors all the time. It's really beautifully done. Um, we've, we've talked about this a bit already, but I did there, I did feel very despondent at, and I can't, I didn't make a note in the piece, so I can't remember exactly where it hit me, but I was like, is anything different now? Like <laughs> in 2022 from what I'm reading about 1979, uh, are we better now, Paula? <laughs> Every, I don't know how many times we've both been asked yeah, that question after the latest scandal, like, and then something else happened, like, you know, after Florida State, are we better? Mm-hmm. And then there's Baylor, and then there's Michigan State, and there's Michigan, and there's and there's LSU, and it's like all these schools should have learned something. I don't even know how to answer that question anymore. Yeah, which is totally fair. I don't. It's totally fair. Well, but you know what? Actually, I will say something, and and it's part of the story that I have to bring up because one answer to making things better is having more people like Irv Panky. Oh yeah, I was I read this on a plane. The other day and I got to that part of the story and I was trying not to like sob on the planet would it be that that person but it was hard yeah having men especially male athletes do the right thing I mean their coaches should be doing the right thing the institution should be doing the right thing but when people like Irv stand up and stand up for women and stand up for victims like that leadership from within I mean maybe that is our answer maybe that is how it's going to change you know maybe the institutions aren't going to do it and and the coaches aren't going to do it. Maybe it will have to come from within the players. And and I know that that the work of, you know, like Brenda Tracy, and that's what she really emphasizes is, you know, leadership from within, from the athletes, from you know, the whole bystander intervention and standing up for women. And, you know, I think anything that anyone can do to encourage that and model bravery and the um, the integrity that he had is at least one step forward. Because, I mean, you know, Todd was... Todd was one of his friends. They hung out. They used to go on Tuesday nights to the train station and drink beer. Well, didn't he go to the hearing to support him? The preliminary hearing? He sure did. That, that was mm-hmm. his initial intent, yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what's going to happen with Irv, you know, now that the story is out. And there's a there's a short film coming out um, soon called uh, Betsy and Irv. And it basically features them. It's it's sort of a excerpted from the story. And it's really lovely. It's a really beautiful I mean, good luck not crying when you when you watch the oh, I'll watch cry. the film. I, yeah, when I you cry watch about the film, everything, you don't have a chance. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really it's really lovely. Um, it would be a wonderful thing if if Irv could become a spokesman for you know that sort of identification that he had with the victim. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I had one final question, which is, I'm wondering what there's so much here. This is thirty thousand words, which like. Wow, kudos to you. I assume it was probably like 50 at some point. No, it was always 30. It was always 30. <laughs> always 30. Always 30. Yeah, it was 30. Yeah, same, same for me. That's exactly how I write too. Uh, I'm wondering like what what do you hope readers take away from this? Um, you know, to me, to me, this is a story. Um there's a really, really big evil in this story. And it's Todd Hodney. And everyone is sort of tested in a way, every single character in it. And people respond in all different ways. Um, you know, a lot of people like look at it, oh, this is just like another attack on Joe Paterno. 
It's not. It's a it's a portrayal of how, you know, Joe Paterno responded to an evil that I don't think that he quite understood. And and so there's a lot of things that arise out of the story that are, I mean, really, really intensely, intensely dramatic, depending on how people respond. And, and the, you know, the women in this story are tested more severely than anyone can scarcely imagine. And, you know, the ones who we spoke to, so many of them were determined and said that they were determined to survive no matter what, you know, to, to live, to live through this. And then you have Irv Pankey seeing that and being, you know, inspired by it and looking at Betsy and saying, this is bravery. And that's what, that's what I, you know, want people to just be aware of that, you know, and to, and to, you know, this is going to sound corny, but, you know, to be, to be like Irv, to look at the pain and say, yeah, I I understand that because I feel it. And there's somewhere in my life where I can relate to it. I mean, one of the really, one of the really distressing things of like, well, of the many distressing things of going on Twitter and looking at like the paternal trolls is that they never, ever, ever mention the victims ever. They don't exist and they do exist in real life and they survive this. And that's what I want people to get out of the story. I think of all the things that I want people to take away from this is to understand the danger of silence and how there is such a stigma to this. And and so many people, even with seemingly good intentions, uh, didn't want this to get out, didn't want to say anything and how that is in so many ways, just increasing the harm and the importance of talking about and acknowledging these difficult things, even when it might, you know, bring negative attention to something is, is crucial for everyone involved at the end of the day. And, you know, I, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I want people to take away from this. I want them to celebrate the survivors and, and the, and everything they've gone through, but, but to realize going forward, how dangerous it is to be silent on these issues. And it's, I mean, the danger of the silence is really literal because there's, there's no doubt in my mind that if the story was told back then, that he would not have gone home. No, I, you know, we, we talk about that a lot. And when that whole issue with the judge and his decision, I think about the Brock Turner case. And I think about all the outrage that came out after he received such a light sentence. I mean, that completely blew up and the judge was recalled. It started an entire movement. I, I hate drawing comparisons between, you know, one woman's plight to another, but yeah, exactly. Like if, if this had happened and more people knew about it, I can't, I can't not think that there would, that would be outrage. And that speaks to, this was 1979 and there's very little coverage, you know, there's no internet, there's no social media. And so the word doesn't get out, but yeah, it would be very different if more people knew about it. Well, thank you both so much for all of your time, for coming on Burn It All Down, and especially for this amazing work that you have done. It, it means a lot to me, and I'm sure to a whole lot of people. Thanks, Jessica. You're quite welcome. Thank it you. Was a, it was really a, a great opportunity to talk about all this. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Burn It All Down. This episode was produced by Tressa Versteg. 
Shelby Weldon is our web and social media wizard. Burn It All Down is part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Follow Burn It All Down on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen, subscribe, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and TuneIn. For show links and transcripts, check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You'll also find a link to our merch at our bonfire store. And thank you to our patrons. Your support means the world. If you want to become a sustaining donor to our show, visit patreon.com slash burnitalldown. As always, burn on and not out.